and we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. On today's program, we have, first of all, Nan Calvert paying her monthly visit to the program and a very important topic indeed. And it is something that is so very, very easy to take for granted. We're going to be talking today about pollinators and one pollinator in particular that is very seriously endangered. Its population has declined drastically over the last couple of decades. And we are in terrible trouble if we begin to lose our pollinators. I mean, much of what uh, drives our entire uh, system of, of food uh, is, is, is dependent on the good, industrious work of pollinators. And in particular, native pollinators who are especially good at, at pollinating and, and, and effective for what we need them to do. So along with Nan Calvert, we have three guests who are working very hard on a project that has recently been created to help uh, preserve the population of one of our most important pollinators, which is, is uh, endangered, the, uh, the rusty-patched bumblebee. And we're going to be talking about uh, it and other bumblebees with our special guests today. Uh, Jessica Orlovsky, who is an assistant professor of biology at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. And then uh, two people from Root Pike Wynn, the, the uh, Root, Root Pike River uh, Water <laughs> Initiative Network. Dave Giordano, the executive director. And Chelsea Snowden-Smith, who is a contractor with Root Pike Wynn. And we welcome all of you to the morning show. Thank you. Good Thank to have you. all of you so here. It's here. a crowd in the studio. <laughs> it <today>. really is. <laughs> an exciting crowd. A lot, a lot of good people here. So, Nan, tell us about your own acquaintance with this project when you first sort of became uh, aware of it, and uh, and what about it struck you as as being important enough to to be a morning show. Oh, Dave started talking about it about a year ago or so. Um, and it was very exciting to me because this is about creating uh, a resilient native landscape that all of our native pollinators require in order to survive. And at the same time, uh, setting up a, a survival situation for them because our native landscapes are exactly what our native pollinators need. Um, we have such an intense focus on honeybees. Uh, it's one of America's favorite pastimes, keeping honeybees, um, and they certainly do pollinate things. But na honeybees are not native. Honeybees are an introduced species. Our native pollinators are in terrible danger because of habitat destruction and the use of pesticides and, and all kinds of things. Um, and they are far more efficient at pollinating than honeybees actually are. The difference is that honeybees are colonial species. In other words, you know, they, they live in big groups, and as a result, human beings can kind of manage and control them. Mm. And of course, they produce honey and beeswax, and you know, we all love that sort of thing. But our native pollinators aren't necessarily colonial. They're more solitary, and we can't necessarily control them either. Um, but they need our help um, Greatly, and one of the ways that we can help them, probably the best way we can help them, is to create native landscapes for them. So, um, and I'll let Dr. Olavsky talk about this, but the rusty patched bumblebee used to be, I, 
I would say regularly seen, and now it rarely it it's rarely if ever seen, um, and and it's sort of an indicator species, and so that's why this project is so important. When you support the rusty patched bumblebee, you bring back an important pollinator, and then at the same time you're supporting other native pollinators as well. So this is really an exciting project for UW Parkside for Summers for Root Pike Watershed Initiative Network, um, and and for the community at large. Very good. So, Dave Giordano, explain why it makes sense for Root Pike Wynn to be part of this. I mean, it isn't exactly what you are about, but it's very close to what you're about. Well, um, you know, as I've said before, um, we're a, our primary goal is water quality, to improve the water quality in, in our watersheds, the, uh, especially the Lake Michigan watersheds like the Root River, Pike River, Oak Creek, Pike Creek, and uh, some of the direct drainage tributaries. The one thing that's really uh, interesting about the Parkside campus is that it's it's the hub of the Pike River watershed. So you have a lot of different intersecting things happening in that area, not only the river, but the environmental corridor, um, and then beyond that, you've got, uh, you know, you've got an incredible campus where you've got um, a lot of talent there from the faculty side and student interest in helping restore these watersheds. So, you know, again, like I've said before, these things aren't having native habitat isn't mutually exclusive. It, it doesn't just serve one purpose. It also has a stormwater purpose as well. So when you're building back the right kind of habitat for these pollinators, you're also bringing in native species that have water quality, stormwater um, retention, and uh, pollutant processing. So it's all kind of working together as that grand design, and we, we want to put that grand design back. Mm-hmm. One so thing, this is the interconnectedness you right. are, you're always talking about. Yes, that I gas on about from time to time. <laughs> yeah, so you have to remember that what happens to the land happens to the water. It's all connected. So whatever's going on upland is going to happen to the water as well. So when you have a diverse, resilient landscape, it um, slows water down. It helps it infiltrate back underground where it's supposed to go. It helps uh, clean it to a certain extent, um, and so it is connected. Watersheds uh, and water quality are directly connected to quality of landscape. So when we're helping the the rusty patched bumblebee, we're helping all kinds of other yeah. elements of our habitat at absolutely. the same time. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So a win-win for root pike win and you know the park side and and so on. Uh, I, I want somebody to give the background in terms of this sort of move by the federal government to kind of create this program uh, to try to safeguard pollinators and uh, and in particular this particular species. Um, describe kind of logistically or legally what we're talking about here on, on kind of a bigger level and then we'll talk about what's going on right here. So I think what you're referring to is that this particular species of bee is federally protected under the Endangered Species Act. So that um, is legislation that protects not only the the bee from direct harm, so uh, capture and injury, but it also protects to a certain degree their habitat. And there's 
increasing recognition that you can't protect a species without protecting its home. So the, the bee was actually federally designated as an endangered species in January of 2017. Um, interestingly enough, it had already been listed in Canada since 2010 under their equivalent of the Endangered Species Act. So um, there is somewhat North American recognition that this particular species was in severe decline and, and needed protection. So what comes out of that protection is a set of policies that look at monitoring of the insect in its habitat as well as looking for places where it was historically but is not currently known. And then that opens up opportunities to do restoration, remediation, and enhancements that would promote the species to return to places where it was historically known. Right. So in other words, we we used to see the rusty-patched bumblebee a lot in a lot more places, and now there's a fair number of, of locations where you don't see it at all anymore, and the places where you used to see it a lot, you see it much more rarely. Correct. And yes. so what about this little corner of Wisconsin? Where, where does it fit in that framework? So in Wisconsin as a whole, it's actually one of the places where it's, it's actually reasonably okay. So there are a fair number of locations within the state, and in particular southeastern Wisconsin, where there are still relatively current records that it has been observed. So that makes this a unique place to do work on this species because if we have some to start with, we can do projects to learn more about their biology, which is absolutely key because there's still a lot we don't know about this particular species. And it also helps us to look at taking steps like this project where if we're doing habitat level um, work, is that having a positive impact on the distribution and the abundance of the species? The voice that you're just hearing is Jessica Orlovsky, who is Assistant Professor of Biology at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. And one of your specialties in terms of what you have studied is invertebrates like insects and specifically bumblebees that we're talking That's about correct. today. Yeah. We also have uh, with us at and Calvert's invitation, Dave Giordano, executive director of Root Pike Wind, and Chelsea Snowden-Smith, who is a contractor for Root Pike Wind. And Chelsea, it sounds like in terms of this specific project, uh, you've, had, uh, you've done a lot of the kind of hands-on work. Uh, describe what's going on kind of overall with this project and what your specific involvement has been. Oh, well, I'm just buzzing around Parkside campus doing some work. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> but no, as I mentioned, I kind of wear a lot of different hats. <clears throat> Excuse me. So recently we've been working with Dr. Olofsky and David Rogers and a lot of the people at Parkside to do restoration plantings. And that's kind of where I've been, boots on the ground, hands in the dirt, and <laughs> putting blooms where bees can actually get to them. So we're hoping to do more work on the cross-country campus. Right now we've been working on the actual campus, working near ponds and really nice prairies that are there, and just trying to make sure they stay good. Hmm. That's how restoration technicians kind of operate. You find the good areas, keep them good, and keep improving other areas as hmm. you go. So it's like that sets the bar of excellence in a sense, and then you try to create more of that similar habitat. Exactly. It. Very good. So who created this? Uh, I mean, it's obviously a collaboration of, 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 
of between Root Pike Wynn and and uh, Parkside for sure. Are there other entities that are also part of this project? Well, um, when we first took a look at the Parkside campus, um, simultaneously, I, I'm always looking for funding, and so uh, I happened to, upon the U.S. Fish and Wildlife site that talks about pollinators, and that's when I learned about the uh, the endangered status of the rusty patch. And it was kind of easy at that point to put two and two together, and I, I ran the idea past Nan and Chelsea, and they're like, yeah, that, that could work. And, um, you know, we've worked with Dr. Orlovsky before and Dave Rogers, Professor Rogers uh, at Parkside, and, you know, we powwowed about it and said, you know, this is something that we want to bring to the administration because we think we can really make this happen. And, and they were very receptive. Uh, they got it right away uh, from the chancellor all the way down to the director of facilities. And again, because there's, you know, what's great about the project is there, there's really a little bit in it for everybody. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's facility benefits, there's course benefits, there's curriculum benefits. Chelsea was, you know, a, a former student of Parkside, so she brings some really good perspective on mm. Uh, integrating curriculum, which we intend to do into this project as well. So it, it really, you know, when we really started to put definition to the, to the idea, we, we, you know, we were bought in and, and so was Parkside pretty quickly. Uh, our intent is to take this, this idea of patches throughout the whole educational community in, in southeastern Wisconsin, where every school, maybe even every daycare, every um, uh, you know, technical college has a patch, and and that's an opportunity not only to learn, but to provide habitat for the rusty patch. And and again, what? How are you using the word patch there when you say everybody needs to have a patch? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's where uh, you know my my marketing background comes in. In that, uh, you know, the idea of putting a patch, uh, a piece of land, dedicating it, whether it's you know. 50 square feet, or in the case of, of Parkside, 210 acres, um, you're, you're dedicating space to this pollinator. And with that comes the other benefits associated with these native plantings. Um, so the, the patch is really designed to help the rusty patch, but also other species as well. Very good. Uh, let's turn to Professor Orlovsky to learn a little more about uh, this particular kind of bumblebee. But first, I want to make sure that uh, I ask you to explain something that Nan said and to make sure it's true and not poppycock. And that is that, uh, that, that, that honeybees pollinate, but not as well as bumblebees pollinate, and particularly native uh, bumblebees pollinate. Uh, if that's true, and I, I have a feeling it's true, why is it true, or in what way is it true? What is it about bumblebees and in particular this bumblebee that makes it uh, a more effective and or more skilled pollinator. Absolutely. This is one of the fun topics I get to talk about. So um, as Nan said, honeybees are not native to the United States. They are considered a domesticated species here. They were brought over with colonists because they provide products that we use, so primarily honey, beeswax, and um, in more recent decades, we've been using them for commercial pollination services. So huge flatbed trucks full of beehives will cross crisscross the country every year 
providing pollination services to orchards, almonds in particular in California and all sorts of places. But what we have realized is honeybees are actually kind of small for some of the flowers, for some of the crops that we really like to eat. So They're th- physically small. They are physically small. So bumblebees, if you could compare a bumblebee to a honeybee, even our smallest worker bumblebees are bigger than a typical honeybee worker. So the size of the bee means they can they get more contact with the reproductive parts of the flower. So that's more pollen coming into contact with the bee, more pollen that's going to move from flower to flower. And the more pollen that moves, the better and bigger and more marketable the fruit is going to be. So a a tomato pollinated by a honeybee is not going to be the same size as a tomato pollinated by a bumblebee. Now the other aspect of bumblebees that make them especially good for certain things like tomatoes is they have buzz pollination, which means the frequency with which they beat their wings actually opens parts of the flower that a honeybee cannot do. So there is more pollen that is available from buzz pollination that, than what would be available to a honeybee. Because it gets opened it, up it to the air. It gets opened up because of the frequency of their wing beats. It's marvelous. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. See, so, I didn't make it up, Greg. She did not make it up. It's absolutely true. It's All right, Nan, Nan spoke the truth today. This is, this is good. I'm also curious, one of the things Nan said that intrigued me a lot was, in a sense, more of a behavioral aspect, mm-hmm. that, that bumblebees are more colonial. They tend to be no, I'm sorry, honeybees are more colonial, that they stick together in big groups, and that bumblebees are more lone, lone journeyers. Does that also make them more effective pollinators in a sense? So that there's, there's a gradient of sociality in bees. There are solitary bees that are um, like carpenter bees and sweat bees, and I'm trying to think of the other common names. I don't want to you know, use too many scientific names here, but there are truly solitary bees. They build one chamber, they lay their eggs, they provision their own nest. So in a sense, every individual is a queen or a Mm. drone. In bumblebees, they are semi-social, which means you have one queen that overwinters, but then she will create a nest where it's all of her daughters that become workers and they help take care of other daughters and these colonies can get up into the hundreds and they're ground nesters so all of these bumblebees are going to be together underground with different chambers that are provisioned with uh, pollen and nectar just like honeybees do but in the fall that queen will lay eggs that become new queens and new males and they will disperse from the nest and only the fertilized queens will overwinter. So they have a cycle of build a, build a colony, and then every winter it's just the queens that overwinter. Honeybees are bigger colonies, and they can maintain those colony sizes over the winter. Mm. And that's actually what the honey is for. They will feed on the honey all winter so that in the spring you've got not only the queen, but you've also got workers to get out into the fields right away. And what humans do is we take some of that honey for ourselves. Um, so so they're not making that for us. They're, they, well, <laughs> the intention was not to share it with us, but you know they go a little crazy. And so we can take some of the extra honey. We can also supplementally feed them. So mm. we're sort of... Um, we're taking care of honeybees. They, they, they 
are some that have, you know, sort of escaped cultivation and they maintain their colonies, but um, they always maintain bigger numbers. So they are constantly social where bumblebees go through this cycle of they have a colony in the summer, but then they go down to one queen. And that's why overwintering habitat and spring floral resources are really important, not just for this particular bumblebee, but for all bumblebees. Hmm. So the flowers that, that uh, Chelsea and her crew are planting, that's what that's about. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. So the preponderance of honeybees is that a contributing factor in the decline of numbers, for instance, the rusty-patched uh, bumblebee, or do we not really know that yet? So there is some evidence that there is competition between honeybees and bumblebees. But I'm, I think it's widely recognized that what's a, a more pressing issue at the moment is the recognition that since bumblebees are better pollinators, People have been raising commercial colonies of bumblebees and moving them around the landscape. So now there's direct competition from commercial bumblebees and wild bumblebees. Uh. And that also increases the chance of disease transmission. So if you have um, commercial bumblebees that are being raised for pollination, there's a chance that they escape. And they're actually really much more challenging to um, keep in a hive than honeybees are. It's relatively easy to keep honeybees in, in a mm. hive. Um, it's much harder with bumblebees. And if any of those have pathogens, they are directly communicable to other bumblebees just by landing on the same flower. Right. And if you have a whole bunch of them together that you're using this commercial yep. fashion, you're asking for trouble yeah. or doing it, doing so at great yeah. risk. Yes. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, by the way, Nan mentioned the fact that we all tend to be very uh, ignorant when it comes to what's a what's a honeybee, what's a bumblebee, what's a wasp, what's a hornet. I mean, they're just all things we're scared of, but we don't think about the distinction between them. Are those other things that I just mentioned, are they pollinators as well? Are they even worse pollinators than a honeybee? They are. So um, even, even yellow jackets, as much as we might loathe them from time to time, are actually pollinators. And... What happens is um, all of those insects are very closely related, but some specialize on different types of floral resources or food resources. So it's usually about this time of year where the nests for wasps, so paper wasp, potter wasp, mud daubers, all of those guys, are getting very large. So the workers that are going out foraging start to scavenge anything they can find which is why they end up at our picnics because uh, they have hungry babies at home to feed mm -hmm. and if they can steal part of your cheeseburger they're gonna go for it <laughs> um, so they are more omnivorous where they will go after other things so they'll leave the flowers and go after more protein rich or, or more nutrient rich foods which may mean our soda and things like that um, whereas Bees in particular, so that's the solitary bees, the social bees, the honeybees, they're going to stay with the flowers and they're going to continue pollinating flowers exclusively and they're a little less aggressive than the wasps. And one of the, the things that you can look for if you're concerned or you're looking around your yard is bumblebees and most bees are extremely fuzzy. So if they're really fuzzy, don't worry about them. They're, they're pollinators. If they're less fuzzy, then they're 
probably more um, yellow jacket, potter wasp, paper wasp, those sorts of things. They're fine. Um, that you know you don't have to you don't have to spray or things like that just be aware of those that um they they are pollinators too but mostly early season right and uh yeah so fuzz is good yes <laughs> that's the first thing <laughs> fuzzy and fuzzy is right cute. and bumblebees don't aren't interested in our cheeseburgers no. the way wasps and hornets are correct so so it sounded like as you described this project that there is an element of it that is of study Absolutely. So let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, for all that you've been telling us, it sounds like there is a lot we do not know or do not fully understand in terms of of the behavior of something like the, the rusty-patched bumblebee. What are the sorts of things that we don't know that we wish we knew or should know that we hope this project can help in terms of, of getting some questions answered? Absolutely. So as... Any entomologist would probably tell you, we know a little bit about a few species and not much about a lot of others. Mm -hmm. And some of the things we know about this particular species are assumptions we're making about much more common species of bumblebee. Because there are many species of bumblebees actually that are in decline, and this one is sort of a, a flagship for many other pollinators. But in particular, what we would like to learn more about from this project is what are the early season habits of the queens when they first emerge and where are they overwintering. Um, a, a common flaw in programs related to endangered insects is that we focus primarily on one life stage because we don't know much about the other life stage. It'd be like protecting elephants but only looking at adult elephants. You'd never mm -hmm. do that. You need to know where the babies are. You need to know where the young are. You need to know how they're raising their young. And really, with a lot of insect endangered species, we focus on the adult stage. And that's not even perhaps the longest part of their life. Many mm. insects spend most of their life as a, a larval or nymphal stage. So we need to know more about how they overwinter and that first um, particularly with the changing timings of flowering plants and, and spring being either late or early, what are they doing in that early season? Um, that, those questions are really key, as well as looking at complementary aspects, like what is their distribution, what are their, their numbers? So that's a pretty common thing that lots of, of uh, researchers are interested in. But I think what we have the opportunity to do, particularly, particularly at Parkside, where they were historically, you know, maybe not common, but at least frequently observed, is start looking at where are they nesting, are there nesting sites available, and what is that early season part of their life cycle like? Right. So who is engaged in that kind of close observation, and has some of that already begun to occur? So I have students who have begun baseline monitoring at um, several sites, including Parkside's campus this summer. So we're just trying to get an idea of, do we have the adults? Do we have workers? Do we um, have them um, in our landscape? And once we're able to do that, then we can continue on with more detailed work, particularly on this um, overwintering question and some of the other aspects of the life cycle. Right. One of the things you were mentioning before we went on the air is that 
in a project like this, which at least to some extent it sounds like is under the auspice of the federal government of the Correct. Endangered Species Act, involves uh, not capturing uh, bees, but only photographing them. Tell us more about why that is so important and also the challenge that is wrapped up in that. Correct. So because this is a federally listed species, it is uh, regulated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which oversees the implementation of the Endangered Species Act. And as with any endangered species, if you are studying it, you need special permits if you're going to handle it because there's always the opportunity that you may harm that particular individual. It's called incidental take, so unintentional harm to that individual. Uh, we'd rather not do that with this particular species for the because of its low numbers and also because bees can sting. Mm. Um, so all bees have a reproductive organ that's their the egg laying organ, which has also has a defensive function. So we don't want to put any of our students in harm, and we also don't want to harm the insect itself. So it is challenging but it is effective to take photographs and use several different angles of photographs to confirm that we have a particular species of bumblebee so they do have distinct color patterns on different body segments where we can identify them so it makes using photos um, effective now it is hilarious to watch students running around trying to take pictures of bumblebees <laughs> so that in itself is worthwhile um, but uh, especially on warm days when they're really, really active. Um, so it, it presents some challenges for how we study them, but it's it's a good way to get some information on them. And what you were just now saying, are you saying that the the patterns are so distinctive that we can tell the difference between Harry and Fred? Absolutely. And, okay. Yep, and you can actually tell the difference in which um, – individual you're looking at in terms of are you looking at a queen are you looking at a worker and are you looking at a male a drone so you can actually tell the difference between each of those what are called casts so the different representations of the species and different species so you can tell that this is a rusty patched queen versus a um, I'm trying to think of another common name the brown belted queen so you can tell species but you can also tell that that one's a worker versus a reproductive. Right. However, I don't think you mean that we can tell the difference between two different rusty patched queens. No. no. So, so it is it's you, not like a fingerprint. It's it? not a fingerprint. So you can't tell individuals within a species, but you can tell the casts and you can tell species apart. So just to add to that, as I've been doing some work on the Parkside campus and working with multiple people on this, I've been stalking bumblebees in the field just trying to take photos but this is a citizen science research project that you can actually do as you're taking a hike through any of these great courses or any of the wonderful forests or even at home so if you happen to see one of these cute little fuzzy bumblebees and there's the orange patch on the back you may have just contributed greatly to a very important project that we're working on as well as the state so it's a very important thing that you can do at home or as you're enjoying any of the natural wonder that is Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. Well put. So as you've been doing your work of primarily, it sounds like planting, and uh, you've you've encountered some of these uh, rusty patched bumblebees, for instance. Have you 
actually seen them or are you still waiting to see your first? I'm, I'm still hoping that I will encounter one. I've encountered a few different kinds and I believe I've actually seen a brown belted one, which are very similar. So getting photos from three different angles is the best way to actually prove that you've seen one. But it's always really entertaining to watch these little bombus bumblebees float around from flower to flower as I'm in the field. And right. it's definitely something that's adorable and very photogenic. So to any of the amateur or professional photographers that like nature photography, this is an opportunity for you to also be a scientist. <laughs> very good. Yeah, the, the Wisconsin DNR actually has a program called the Bumblebee Brigade. So if people want more information, they have workshops in the summer and they have a website where people can contribute the data that Chelsea's mentioning directly to them. And they, they have experts that are verifying those images. Wow. So how steep a decline are we talking about? I don't think we've yet kind of talked about the numbers, which really paint a picture of just how a severe de decline this is. Uh, tell, us, tell us what we know. So this particular species is sort of a flagship for other bombus, um, other bumblebees. And what we know about the rusty patched is that it historically covered uh, most of the Midwest of the United States, the Northeast, and two Canadian provinces. And now that range is believed to be restricted only to 13 states and one Canadian province, hence why Canada also listed this species. So it's, um, I believe, 87%, I think that was the number that we discussed earlier, yes. uh, uh, decline in the numbers that have been observed since um, you know, the last several decades, the uh, 40, 50 years ago. Wow. So it's incredibly. Yeah. And this was one that, it, you know, because it has this rust colored patch, it, it's a bit more iconic. So people noticed that it was missing when it used to be more common um, in the landscape. Right. And I suppose we're talking about a couple of different things. We're talking about losing an important pollinator but we're also talking about, in a sense, that uh, canary in the mine shaft scenario where exactly. this decline almost certainly points to other serious issues uh, in, our, in our landscape, um, in, in our natural world in terms of what we have done to it, which uh, point to maybe even more serious problems. So Absolutely. it's important on two different levels. Yeah, there's many other species that would co-locate with this particular bumblebee that we don't have good data on because they're small or inconspicuous and they're no less uh, valuable than the pollinators, but they're much harder to observe or study. And by protecting this species, we protect many others. Hmm. And just to add to that, that's also part of the reason why we're so focused on stormwater quality and using plantings to enhance that because if you have invasive plants, they end up changing the soil qualities, which end up changing the plants that actually survive there. And if you change the plants too much, you end up changing the animals that feed on them. Mm -hmm. yeah. The, yeah, the other thing to that is uh, what's really unique about the, the Parkside campus and the cross-country course is, is we have the opportunity there to create that diverse habitat that allows for um, kind of the four seasons of development and and um, uh, uh, feeding for the rusty patch and and the other associated um, uh, species. So, you know, by having areas woodland areas that you know in the spring 
are going to be the areas that typically have the spring flowers. Well, we want to make sure that that part of the cross-country course is really performing well in terms of those spring flowers. So there are a lot of invasive species on the cross-country course, a lot of invasive uh, vegetation. And so that's one of the big things that we're, we're looking at is how to, how to replace those invasives that have, have uh, you know, really taken hold there and replace that with the native stuff that um, is going to be better for, for the bumblebee. Mm. And it's an obvious chance for not only the cross-country course itself to perform, but for our athletes and for the students and as a Parkside alumni, this project in particular has been really important to me because I've been one of those students who have done the studies, not with Dr. Orlovsky and being laughed at while I chase bumblebees and take photos <laughs> in a field, <laughs> but I've done studies on soil quality and on different projects to make Parkside this campus that continues its excellence in community-based learning and citizen science uh, partnerships and working with the county and organizations that I've been lucky enough to work with, like the Root Pike Wynn, who I actually worked with as a student and I'm now hmm. with as an alumni. Right. So, so, and, and I can sense, too, that you have a, a real sense of connection to Parkside and to those beautiful grounds that surround Parkside. And, and uh, that just sort of feeds your excitement about being part of this particular project. Oh, absolutely. As a student, I actually moved back from Seattle to come here and study environmental science because it was someplace close to home that I could live and learn and be a part of. And the best thing that could have ever happened, I now get to help continue that as someone in my field of environmental mm. science. Fantastic. So let's talk about what needs to be planted. And so what's making uh, Chelsea get her hands dirty, she and uh, others who are, who are doing this. So what are the kinds of things that need to be planted in order to uh, help sustain the rusty patched bumblebee and bring it back? Uh, I knew I was going to get a plant question. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you have a plant expert right next to you as well. I was going to say Nan is fantastic with this. Yeah. Thank you. And Greg, I'm not making it up either. <laughs> Phew, okay. <laughs> so uh, just one thing I wanted to say that ties in with our most recent conversation here. Native species, native plant species that we're putting in support not only the rusty-patched bumblebee, but as Dr. Orlovsky said and Chelsea too, and Dave, it supports a whole host of other native insect species that are also pollinators. Um, but the thing that people um, sometimes don't realize is that those pollinators depend on those plants, but those plants are depending on the pollinators too. Mm. And yes, we have quite a number, sadly, quite a number of endangered um, and declining insects, but we also have dozens and dozens of dozens of threatened and endangered plant species here in Wisconsin. So when you support one, you support the other. It's a relationship. I, I do say that a lot, but it is a relationship. So by and large, to answer your question, anytime you put in a, a diverse native landscape, you're going to be supporting a diverse uh, number of native insects. Um, and diversity is the key. Um, and then there are obviously uh, some plant species that the um, insects will gravitate toward. So, for example, Dave was talking about having um, a species of liatris in his yard. Um, 
Blazing Star. Blazing Star, thank you. <laughs> and and he was watching the bumblebees come to it. And then Dr. Olafsky was saying, we'll talk about how they're... Yeah, so um, I may not be able to provide exact species names of plants, but I do know a little bit about, you know, the pollination side of things. So bees... Uh, usually forage on a variety of species. Uh, bumblebees in particular will shift which plants they're looking at over the course of the season. So they're not exclusive to one plant, which is why diversity matters. Hmm. But when a particular species is blooming, they will exclusively pollinate that before moving to the next. So hmm. when Dave was talking to us about the blazing star, that particular bee is going to go after all the blazing star it can find. And then when blazing star is done blooming, maybe it'll switch to goldenrod and it'll just go after goldenrod. So having enough of um, that particular species in places that are close enough for them to fly around to is really important. You know, one of the things that I I got to do actually literally in my own backyard was, uh, you know, I've, I have a, a stand of buckthorn and yeah, I've been working on it for years. It's hard to get rid of, but I got rid of a big patch of it and did nothing but get rid of it. And what came back this spring was an incredible patch of trout lilies. I don't know the Latin name, but I'm a trout fisherman, so I got excited for a number of different reasons. But just a huge patch, and they were all blooming, and I th- and, and it really clicked for me. You know, I got to see it happen. So you get rid of the invasives the natives come back literally in this case on their own and and now there's a a food supply there in what was it late april Mm -hmm. for for our pollinators so it was pretty cool to see that actually happen wow just to uh, tie into what jessica was saying um so here we have all these bees on this plant in dave's yard and they're going to look for that plant because now it's the bloom time for that plant. And just think of how hard they have to look for it. They have mm. to find, you know, they have to now fly to Chiwaki Prairie or, you know, they're going to have to fly to Parkside. And, and wouldn't it be great if we had patches of small but diverse native plantings everywhere? And yes, you know, those are islands, but it's all island ecology now because it's all, you know, separated by yards and homes and streets and all that sort of thing. And so, um, as Dave was saying, you know, if we can get this patch program going and we can get patches everywhere, just think of the diversity that we're, that we're supporting. But to, anyway, to get back to, to um, species that support pollinators, um, you know, I mean, I could give a list. I could go on and on and on. If you want a list, give us a call or shoot us an email at Root Pike Win, and I can provide you with a list of plants. The other thing that I wanted to say while I was here is um, a few years ago, we had Heather Holm on, and she wrote a really terrific book called Pollinators of Native Plants. Um, and uh, it's how to attract, observe, and how to plant for native pollinators. And she's not very far from us. She's in Minnesota. Her name is Heather Holm, H-O-L-M. Go to her website. It's a fantastic website. Um, but we'd rather you come to Root Pike Wind's website and <laughs> get the list of plants there. So, and, and pictures. We can send you pictures. So part of the point of this then is not just this project going on on the grounds of Parkside, but also you hope people within who live within this watershed will also do this in their own backyards to some extent. Is Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everyone could have a patch theoretically, and it wouldn't take much. Um like I said, there's a, a lot of sources out there for, for native plants for this area. 
Uh, it doesn't take much. I'm, I'm learning about it myself. I'm not an expert in, in plants or bugs or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm just curious. And so, you know, I've, through the resources that we've had here at Root Pike Wynn and working with uh, Dr. Orlovsky and, and other faculty, you know, it, it's really catching on. And, you know, when it, when it starts to happen and when you've developed these patches, I've got my own little patch I've got going on. They're really beautiful. You know, I mean, aesthetically, it's it's awesome because if you do it right, you've got something blooming from, you know, let's say late March all the way into uh, early October with the asters. Mm-hmm. Right. And additionally, with being with Rupike Lynn, and I'm also an engineering technician for the city of Kenosha working with the stormwater utility, we get complaints about the heavy rains and the ponding in the yards and just the wet grounds, well, these are perfect opportunities, and these are actually suggestions I've given out as an engineering technician is to utilize your yard as more of a rain garden area because lots of people love to have floral gardens and they love the looks, but if you utilize your sump pumps or your your downspouts to actually create these little patches in your own yard, not only do you have a garden that waters itself, you also have an area where these native pollinators will come and do some of the work of pollinating these plants for you. They'll come back year after year, and it's just something beautiful to look at. Absolutely. And by the way, they don't always have to be in your backyard. They can be in the front yard, too, <laughs> where people can see them. Absolutely. In fact, that makes a lot of sense, actually, for people to think about that. So let's just remind people if they want more information on this particular project and what we've been talking about, what are a couple of the best resources for them to turn to? Uh, you can give us a call, send us an email at rootpikewin.org, uh, and we can give you all kinds of information about this project and other uh, habitat restoration projects that are going on. Very good. And do I understand, Professor Orlovsky, that there are projects at least roughly similar to this going on in other parts of the country? Absolutely. Yep. So this is an active area of research for uh, many groups, uh, particularly in the Midwest and the Northeast, where this species was uh, particularly common historically. And I I thought that I would mention, you know, we've done a, a good job with promoting plantings of milkweeds for monarchs. We just need to think of this in a similar way and get people on board. And this one's perhaps even a bit more special because it's been, it's here year round, um, unlike monarchs that migrate. So we've got to take care of the ones that stick around and, you know, make it through winter with us. Mm-hmm. Very, very good. Well, it's been really exciting to hear about this uh, incredible project. And uh, I'm very glad that we could have this uh, conversation with all of you. Uh, Jessica Orlovsky, Assistant Professor of Biology at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside, and Dave Giordano and Chelsea Snowden-Smith, both from Root Pike Wynn. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today on The Morning Show and to share this really important story. We hope a lot of people will get excited to be a part of it. So thank you for being here. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. And thank you, Nan Calvert, for having this uh, terrific idea. Uh, We will have your calendar of events on tomorrow's morning show. All right. uh, But I appreciate you uh, gathering these uh, wonderful people (laughs) together for a really terrific conversation. Oh, my privilege. Thank you.